Hi, I'm Forrest Coleman. I'm Erica Senor. And I'm Julia Turan. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West and Stanford Radio, KZSU 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Astor Bryant, a fifth-year graduate student in Eric Knudsen and John Huguenard's lab here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, Astra. Thanks for having me. So, Astro, we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. Can you tell us what it is and walk us through how to make it? Yes, I can. So we have all the things here for a whiskey sour. You might be able to guess it involves whiskey and sweet and sour cocktail mixer. Mm-hmm. Other things I have on the table in front of me are ice, the cocktail shaker shaped like a penguin that one really needs in order to make a good whiskey <laughs> sour, and also some, some cherries to top it all off. When did you acquire this uh, penguin-shaped shaker? So this was a birthday present from my sister, which she gave to me explicitly for use on this show. She heard about it, and she said, aha, eventually they will, they will ask you, and you must be prepared with a cocktail shaker. Okay, so the ice is now in the cocktail shaker. So this, since it's penguin-shaped, the head of the penguin detaches and is used as a measuring cup. So first thing is it's a two-to-one ratio of sweet and sour mix to whiskey. So the sweet and sour mix is going in first. So two heads two heads of sweet and sour mix. mix and one, one head headed. of whiskey. We have a Kentucky straight bourbon for this. We also have about three more bottles of whiskey from various labs, just in case things get And by various, crazy. you mean yours. Sort of mine, yeah. <laughs> I didn't bring all my whiskey in lab. It's important to have a, a good stash above your desk. Okay, so the whiskey's in, the penguin is closed. It's got a bow tie, by the way. Very important. Yeah. All right, shaking, and now transferring into my iced cup. And lastly, cherry with some juice. So do you remember the first time you ever had a whiskey sour? I actually do. So you go into a bar and they're like, oh, what cocktail do you want? And I never know what to say. So a classmate of mine, Kelly Zalikuski, took a bartending course. And so I tasked her with finding me a cocktail that I could go up in any bar, especially at SFN, because we were going to SFN. And I knew we were going to go to a bar and wanted something that I could just go in and not be stressed about asking. And she's like, okay, well, you drink a lot of whiskey with your lab. So just if you don't want to order straight whiskey, just have a whiskey sour. You'll love it. It's, it'll be fine. And she was... Completely correct. This is what friends are for in, in graduate school. Telling me what to do with my whiskey at SFN. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> okay, so before you started graduate school, you worked as a technician in John Huguenard's lab. Is that, is that right? That is correct. Okay, so before you started graduate school, you worked as a technician in John Huguenard's lab. Is that, is that right? That is correct. Do you remember your interview for getting that job? Yes. Yes, I do. So I went to undergraduate at Bryn Mawr College, which is in Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. And I was at the stage where I knew I wanted to, I was going to graduate in January. And so I was trying to find a job that I had this idea that I wanted to go to graduate school in neurosciences, but I wanted to make sure that that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I wanted to have experience working in a, in a sort of a large lab at a big university. So I had spent the semester of that first semester of my senior year looking on Craigslist for tech jobs. 
you all laugh and everyone I ever tell this to starts chuckling. But let me tell you that I, in fact, almost interviewed at two places at Stanford because Miriam Goodman was also looking for a tech by posting on Craigslist. It's apparently a very popular thing to do. But in any case, John Huguenard had posted the desire for a technician. And the job requirements included things like being able to lift 20 pounds. So I was like, okay, this is good. Like, I can be a tech in a neuroscience lab. I can lift things. So I had emailed him my resume and said, look, I'm interested. And I got an email back from him saying, oh, you know, it sounds great. Can you come to Stanford to have an an in-person interview? And my response was, well, I'm currently in Pennsylvania. I'll I'll be home. So my family's from Mountain View, two towns over. I was like, I'll I'll be home in in like three weeks for Christmas break. Like, can can we do it then? He's like, oh, you're, you're in Pennsylvania, are you? So I'm going to be in Philadelphia for a conference. Why don't we just meet up at my hotel? Like, <laughs> and we'll have this interview. I was like, okay. So I, I trek all the way to, to Philadelphia. And we sit down for this conference. I find him in this hotel lobby. So this is a very important question. What was the state of John Huguenard's facial hair oh, God. at this point? It was, so for those of you who, who don't know, John's facial hair varies from clean shaven to mustache only, to... Charles Darwin. Yes, sort of. Um, (laughs) It wasn't bearded. So it it was either clean-shaven or mustached. Yeah. So we get there and we sit down, and I'm very nervous. It's the first time, basically, I've I've really ever done anything like this. You know, a formal job interview. And we sit down, the first question he asked me is, so so how long would you would you stay if I hired you like how long would you be there for I was like oh you know like like a year and a half this is this is in December of 07 so I was like oh like a year and a half because I'd like to apply for graduate schools and so you know I'd start in September of 09 and so I'd be with you for that long he's like okay okay that that sounds good that sounds reasonable do you play softball is his next (laughs) question like what kind of question is that sort of thinking I'm like well I mean, I think I might have played in middle school. Does that count? It's like, <laughs> excellent. Very good. And it sort of goes on there for 45 minutes, at which point he's offered me the job at the end of it. At this point, it should be noted that somehow in Googling John for this interview, I had not realized that he was the head of the neuroscience program at Stanford. So I had no idea who he was. So... After the interview, after he's offered me the job on the spot, I asked him whether I could have some time to think about it. And I go and I, I look him up, even, like, again, just to be like, okay, is he doing this sort of thing that, that sounds interesting? You know, it's, it's epilepsy thing. What's, what's he really doing? I see on there, list him, like, director, Stanford Neuroscience PhD program. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm uh, very fortunate. The Huguenot Lab is a great place. There were great people uh, there at the time that I was I was teching. So had you done any any neuroscience experiments before that? Yeah. So so I'd been working in leech electrophysiology for about I guess a year at that point. So sharp recordings, preparation of the leech where you can basically remove the entire nervous system and play with it in a dish. So I'd, I'd sort of done electrophysiology. I'd never done at that point. So Bryn Mawr uh, doesn't have 
lots of funding for the individual labs you sort of are, are working on perhaps a smaller scale than, than we think of at these larger universities like Stanford. So I distinctly remember learning about patch clamp electrophysiology and very naively going up to the head of the lab I was in saying, oh my God, we should totally do patch clamping. And now realizing that I basically asked him to buy multiple tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. He's like, you know, I think we're, I think we're good. I think we, we don't need it. He let me down very, very gently. So John's lab studies thalamic cortical epilepsy. And so when you were in his lab, you were focusing on how changes in thalamic oscillations drive different forms of epilepsy. Is that correct? Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. So the great thing about the way John has his techs work, is that you come in and your duties involve things like taking care of mouse colonies and genotyping and making sure the postdocs don't burn the building down. But you also are given the opportunity, if you so choose, to have a research project that is your project, that you write up as a paper, you do the experiments, you run the data analysis. Mm -hmm. So I came in and saying, look, I'm interested in going to graduate school. And John said, great, here's this project that had been started a number of years ago by, I believe it was a previous technician named Boja Lee. And so she collected a bunch of data but had left before the project was finished. And so I took it over and completed it. And the idea was that in the brain, glutamate is released, the neurotransmitter glutamate is released synaptically. And that glutamate that's released, taken back up into the presynaptic neuron for repackaging into vesicles. And the way that it does that often involves release from the presynaptic membrane being taken up as glutamate by local astrocytes, being converted into glutamine. The glutamine is then released back into the extracellular space where it's taken up by the presynaptic neuron, which then converts the glutamine to glutamate and repackages it in vesicles. Mm. So when you have a slice where... The extracellular milieu is basically messed up to a significant amount. So the concentration of extracellular glutamate decreases quite sharply from what it is inside the sort of intact brain. So the question had been, that because of that, when you have glutamate released into the cleft, is it immediately washed away in your perfusion system so it's not as ably taken up by the astrocytes and then repackaged? So the idea was that a consequence of this could be that if you have a system that is particularly active, releasing a lot of glutamate, that you might deplete the amount of glutamate you have available. So your activity would decrease over time with, with sort of more and more activity. And this is what people see when they make epileptic slices? Well, some people see it. It, it seems to depend very much on the, the amount of activity in the slices. So in the slice, if you take a thalamocortical slice that has epileptiform discharges, and you stimulate every 30 seconds, you, you give an electrical pulse. Over time, what you see is that the oscillation gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Now, you can fully prevent this slow decay if you put into your ACSF, artificial cerebrospinal fluid, the thing that's sort of bathing your slice. Fake, in, fake brain juice. Fake brain juice. Yeah. If you add supplement your fake brain juice with glutamine, which, if you remember, is the thing that then the neurons take up and, and convert into glutamate. If you supplement your brain juice with the glutamine, you prevent this, what we termed, rundown. And, and the ability of that to work depends on this astrocytic glutamate-glutamine cycle. Using the thalamocortical brain 
slice and the epileptiform discharges that you can elicit in that slice was that you have this rundown that you can prevent the rundown with uh, physiological amounts of glutamine being added to your perfusion system. And then we showed through a bunch of pharmacological blockades that if you block various portions of the glutamate-glutamine cycle, if you block the conversion of glutamine to glutamate, you prevent this. If you block the channels that were hypothesized to take up the glutamine into the neurons, you prevent the effects of the glutamine in preventing this rundown of neural activity. And we also showed, and I think the most potentially critical from a therapeutic standpoint, is we showed that the ability of the rundown of activity to exist in the first place is highly dependent on how active the system is. So thalamocortical slices have two modes. So they have the epileptiform activity, but they also you can generate if you don't sort of treat them with drugs that turn them epileptic. They will produce these spindle oscillations, which are a slightly different frequency, but they're, they're a physiological activity that's often seen during sleep. They're called sleep spindles. So that activity is not dependent on this cycle. And the idea is that it's a less synchronized network that produces these sleep spindles. And so if you don't have tons of neurons firing extremely robustly time and time again, that you have enough neurons that still have a, a relatively okay volume of glutamate within them, that they can be fine without this insult of breaking the extracellular milieu into just a river that pulls everything away from the, the cells. So when a, when a human being has an epileptic fit, do yeah. we know what causes it to stop? Is it, is it potentially this kind of rundown that they kind yeah. of run out of glutamate, or do we it's not know? It's hard to know. I, I think we don't really know. This idea of what pauses an oscillation, any type of oscillation, is really unknown. So this, this is something that I worked on in leeches. Leech swimming rhythms will stop for no discernible reason. Um, epileptiform discharges run down and stop. Um, it's quite possible it has something to do with the dynamics of neurotransmitter and, and the cells not being able to keep up with the demand, just the physical demand of, of releasing that much chemical. You know, it, it probably has also to do with, with the properties of, of the neurons themselves and, and maybe the responses of, of those cells to each other. It, it's, it's hard to know. I, I wouldn't want to extrapolate too much the, the in vivo circumstance. And no one's really tested. Like, I don't think anyone's done sort of like a put something that captures glutamine into the brain that will cage it once it's released and see if that shortens. Yeah, I, I, as far as I know, no one's even attempted to do that. So when you're talking about the brain generating these oscillations, what exactly does that mean? Like what neurons are being involved and what are the neurons doing? Particularly when you talk about, you know, oscillations being at different frequencies. How do these neurons generate these different oscillations and what does that actually look like? Oh, okay. So there are many different types of neural rhythms in the brain. Some of them are physiological. They happen like sleep spindles are a type of rhythm that are generated by a network of neurons, so neurons that are connected to each other and have a complex interplay. There are multiple sort of ways that you can get an oscillation out of a network or a series of cells, ranging from individual cells that have pacemakers within them that sort of set a rhythm 
I guess this is what happens often in heart cells. They have, you know, these internal pacemakers. And this, mm. this happens as these cortical cells that if you sort of provide them with a very specific type of stimulus within them, they're capable of generating this oscillatory rhythm just by themselves for whatever reason. The oscillations that I've worked with for shockingly all of my career in neuroscience from undergrad through my graduate career have been oscillations that are generated as a function of the interplay between different types of cells. So the flammocortical oscillations involve excitatory and inhibitory neurons that are coupled together. And if you provide them with a stimulus and certain, in some cases, pharmacological manipulations, they will generate sort of this persistent activity that, based on the connection between those neurons, generates something that looks sort of like a sinusoidal wave. And the frequency of that wave is often dependent on the intrinsic properties of the neurons themselves. So how quickly do their membranes respond to incoming excitation or inhibition? That seems to be a major component of, of how you generate different frequencies of oscillations. So nowadays you're studying gaze control and attention in chickens. That's definitely what the Newton lab study is. So the, the Newton lab, Eric Newton's lab, is, is currently using chickens as a model organism to study regions of the brain that are important for gaze control, attention, looking at how various systems are working to alter the representation of sensory objects in the context of, of attentional tasks. Maybe it would be good to take a step back and, and ask you, why is it that you have two advisors? Ah, so I have two advisors because, um, so I'm an in vitro electrophysiologist. So I like doing things like patch clamping, which is basically, you know, getting a getting a glass electrode to nestle up all sexy-like to a neuron and... and <laughs> record from individual cells. So I came into graduate school with just an appreciation, a real love of electrophysiology, which I think is the only way you can actually do electrophysiology is if you just think it's the be-all and end-all. So it is. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that. So there was that. There was this technique that I really wanted to look at, at science and questions of neuroscience at that level of circuits and activity of, of single neurons in a network context. So, but the other part of this was that Eric and Eric's lab were asking some really interesting questions. They have a circuit, which is important for gaze control. It's called the superior colliculus in mammals. So in the birds, it's the optic tectum. And it's really important for, for gaze control. It seems to have seems to be at play with, with attention. So you see attentional enhancement of sensory information processing within the tectum. So I was really excited about the questions that Eric was asking because he'd had, his lab had done a lot of research looking at this idea that you have these circuits within the tectum that seem to be playing a critical role for quote-unquote attention. Most of these were done in, in a tranquilized owl, so it's hard to call it attention, but it's enhancement of sensory information processing. So he, he had all this data, but what he was trying to do was to now look at those same circuits at the single cell perspective, so the perspective of, of an in vitro electrophysiology to complement, you know, just years of really precise in vivo work. So I 
joined a postdoc at the time by the name of Alex Goddard. So he made a very convincing argument that what he was doing was just the most exciting science you could ever possibly hope to do. So I basically copied Alex and joined Eric's lab. But because Eric didn't have experience using in vitro electrophysiology, John was brought on board to be the voice of, of wisdom when it came to electrophysiology, which of course he is. He knows just so much about the techniques and how to apply them to specific questions. So the idea was that as a graduate student and with Alex as a postdoc, we could really use someone who had the technical knowledge to complement the scientific questions that Eric was providing. So why chickens over other model organisms? Ah, there are a couple of reasons. The main one at this point is, so the chicken optic tectum, which is the brain region we study. So in birds, the tectum is the most complex of any animal. So if you, if you compare the optic tectum of the chicken with the superior colliculus of the mouse, you will notice right off that the, the chicken's tectum is has beautiful architecture that's been really carefully described by a lot of people, including Ramoni Cajal, who just went to town on like the different cell types. And there's, there's a really beautiful and very well-described architecture. And we know a lot about what the tectum is doing and what the inputs are and what the outputs are. And the different components within the circuit are well segregated into different distinct layers. And in the mammalian superior colliculus, all those layers are sort of mushed up into each other, the superior colliculus isn't used as much. All the processing power moved up into the cortex. And so in the absence of a strong selective pressure, the sort of the architecture went all to hell. And it, it just looks terrible <laughs> from the perspective of an in vitro physiologist who wants to be able to very specifically say, well, what if I want to selectively have an electrical stimulator that's going to activate the axons of retinal ganglion cells that are coming into the tectum. So in the chicken, I can do that. They're in a specific layer. They're in the first layer. They sort of coat the outside of the tectum. So I can selectively activate them. In the mouse, like who knows where they are? It's really yeah. hard to know what's going on. There's no dis really distinct cell layers. It's, it's sort of a mess. So the function of the optic tectum from the chicken to mouse and presumably human has been divided between the superior colliculus and the cortex? Well, so they're both, so in the human and the monkey and the mouse and the chicken and the owl, I should say. Um, so, in, so in all these organisms, so that the optic tectum, let's just refer to it as the, as the optic tectum. So it's, a, it's an evolutionarily ancient structure. Every animal has it. Mm -hmm. fish habits uh, up to humans. And in all of these species, it has something to do. It plays a very critical role for controlling the direction of gaze and also for controlling the mm -hmm. locus of attention. Excuse me. So if you electrically stimulate the tectum, you can get eye movements or head movements or, you know, if you really whack it, full body movements. And you have lots of integration of different sensory modalities. So Eric very classically showed that the optic tectum of the owl <laughs> has aligned sensory maps of auditory and visual space. So it's this absolutely gorgeous multimodal structure mm -hmm. um, that, that seems to be, you know, colloquially what it's doing is it's allowing you to say, well, uh, did I hear something or did I see something in this particular portion of space? 
if I did, let me let the rest of the brain know hmm. that I did. And if it's really critical, you know, if it's really bright, it has the, the potential functionality to say that was such a salient stimulus in the world that I need to turn to look at it right now or I need to escape from it immediately. So the, the other main reason why chickens is to some extent a historical one. And this road goes from Eric Knudsen and many people when they hear Eric Knudsen think the barn owl. Mm -hmm. He's had a long, glorious career showing really elegant studies in the barn owl, trying to understand the circuitry that is causing sensory enhancement. He's done experiments where you have an owl that's passively looking at a screen and you have a salient stimulus in the world. And you can see that if you have that stimulus that, you know, the most salient thing in the world will enhance the processing of auditory or visual information in that region of space so that the neurons that encode that sensory stimulus are enhanced if it's the brightest thing or the loudest thing in space. Mm -hmm. So you showed that, but what you really want to say is if you direct your attention to an area of space, the neurons in the tectum, their firing rate is enhanced. But you shouldn't. No one should use the word attention when you're dealing with a tranquilized animal, a passive animal, something that's not performing an attention task. So what Eric wanted was to move from these passive birds into an animal performing an attention task. So he tried doing this with owls, and owls don't make the best behavioral subjects, it turns out. It's hard to motivate them to do anything. They sort of just sit there and... and laugh at you. <laughs> so Phyllis Knudsen, who's our, our lab manager, she spent quite a while attempting to train barn owls to perform attention tasks. And, and just the numbers of trials you were get were not enough because you're feeding this owl a mouse, a bit of mouse, and they're just fine having a little bit of mouse and they'll, they'll wait you out. They're pretty sure <laughs> that you're going to get tired of this game before they do. <laughs> So at the time, before I came into the lab, there'd been sort of this growing desire for an animal that would do an attention task. At the same time, Eric really wanted to sort of get into sort of the circuitry and, and really pick apart. There were, there's multiple brain structures that seem to be really important for this enhancement of information processing. So he really wanted to say, well, let's go in vitro and, and really test what these different these different inputs into the structure are doing. So much as it's difficult to get an owl as an attention model, it's also somewhat impractical to have an animal as a, a model or an, an owl as your model system when you're doing slice physiology. Because, you know, Eric breeds, he has breeding pairs of owls that, that raise hatchlings and then he brings the hatchlings in. So... That's sort of an expensive proposition. Yeah, not ideal for slice physiology. So the suggestion was made that we use chickens, which are inexpensive and easy to produce. So I get fertilized eggs from a farm delivered to Stanford. I have an industrial incubator. I pop the fertilized eggs into the incubator, and three weeks later I have chicks. That had sort of been the first step. And then someone in lab noticed that these one-day-old chickens in their sort of little housing area, they were all sort of staring at a wall and pecking at a bit of cardboard. Hmm. And so someone 
I think it might have been Alex Goddard, I'd like to credit with him, I apologize if it wasn't him, said, well, these birds are clearly paying attention to something. They've seen it. We can't see what they're intending to, but they're pecking at it. Like, maybe we could train these birds to do an attention task. So, in, in fact, that's what a major portion of the lab has been doing. So I'm currently the only slice physiologist in the lab. The rest of the lab is doing attention in chickens. And any day now, we just had our first paper accepted to PNAS that will bear the title something along the lines of visual attention in chickens. It's very exciting. Listeners interested in learning more about behavioral tasks in chickens should keep an eye out for the paper by Sridhar Devarajan and team that Astra mentioned to be published in PNAS. So what tasks do, do little baby chickens do? Well, so, so the behavior group, and I'm definitely not the expert in this, so potentially going to be mangling a lot of what they do, which is really elegant, well-thought-out work. A lot of the things we have them do is we actually get fully grown adult hens, and they can be trained to do things like a like an orientation discrimination task. So if chickens are looking at a screen, on the screen shows up either a grating, uh, you know, a circular bit of grating that is where the bars are horizontal or the bars are vertical. And if they're horizontal, the animal does one, reports one thing. And if they're the other way around, they report to somewhere else on the screen. So, and the idea is, well, if you cue them, if you warn them, you know, what area of space that grating is going to appear in, do they get better at making the discrimination and sort of accurately reporting what they saw? And then the eventual plan, Jason Schwartz in the lab, who's a postdoc, will be recording from their tectum to see whether the neural activity uh, changes if you if their attention is directed to that sort of location in visual space that he's recording from. All right. Can you explain something for me? You were sure. describing how, you know, what, what Eric is really interested in is this effect where you shine a, a stimulus on a portion of the visual space and that enhances visual processing. But you are now, you're a slice electrophysiologist. How are your slice experiments pr- helping provide insight yeah. to how the, how the animal does this, this thing that obviously involves, you know, their eyes still being connected and, right. and so on and so forth? So, so what I've sort of not done is explain the basic concept of the circuitry that's at play here. So that will make this a lot clearer why what I do is at all relevant. So the tectum contains can be sort of divided into a few general categories, the layers. There's there's on the order of 13 layers in the optic tectum, and we can divide those layers into, into these groups. So you have a couple layers that are dealing primarily with visual information, and they output up to visual thalamus. You have another group of layers that are dealing with multimodal sensor information. They go to multimodal thalamus as well as to sort of the brainstem nuclei dealing with gaze control. And into this brain region, you also have two associated nuclei, one of which is a GABAergic, so an inhibitory nucleus, and the other one is cholinergic, so releases acetylcholine. And the architecture especially if the cholinergic nucleus is such that neurons in that nucleus receive so that the tectum is, has a topographic map of sensory space. Imagine the tectum as a, it's basically a sphere. So onto that sphere is mapped the sensory environment. So 
you know, straight ahead is on one portion of the tectum. And right next to that is immediately to the left of center. And right next to immediately left of center is, is sort of so on and so forth. So if you were to flash a light right in front of you, then the front of the sphere would have input. And if you were to flash a light to the right of you, the, right, the right of the, of the, the sphere. sphere. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, that's the basic concept. So the sensory world is basically represented accurately on the tectum. So you have this associated cholinergic nucleus that also receives that sort of highly mapped input. So one end of this nucleus receives input from the right side of your visual space, and the other end of this nucleus receives input from the left side of your visual sort of space or your sensory space uh, from, and it's receiving that information from neurons in the tectum. So it has that map inside this nucleus, and then its projections go back reciprocally. So you have sort of this architecture that could allow you to basically have a spotlight of cholinergic release, of release of acetylcholine. So if you have a bright light in, say, the upper left of your sensory space, then the neurons that encode the upper left in the tectum would be activated. They would drive the neurons in this cholinergic nucleus that encode the upper right, and those neurons would, f- would release the acetylcholine back onto the neurons that, that encode the upper right. Okay, so because you've got this map, yeah. you can go and make a brain slice, and you, I mean, you, you sort of already have a map of what part of space is what, and you know that yeah, all these and, inputs all kind of line and up. And because the nucleus, the, this cholinergic nucleus, is, is relatively nearby, you can cut a slice where the axons between the tectal neurons and the cholinergic neurons are completely intact through the wonders of geometry. Like, you can get this, this you know, sort of fully intact slice or, or a section of your slice can be fully intact. Can you explain to maybe an even more basic yeah. question? Why, why cut a slice? Why not just take the whole brain and plop it down there? Well, for a variety of reasons. The best one, I think, being that if you're doing slice physiology, if you're doing patch clamp electrophysiology, it is much, much easier to patch clamp a neuron if you can see it. If you put it under a microscope and say, that's my neuron, this is my electrode, my electrode is very close, I can see the, the pressure of the, the solution of my electrode is pushing on the membrane of my neuron, I can see that, I can suck up the neuron and access inside that neuron. So that's much easier if you can see what you're doing. If you plop down the entire brain, you know, you're working in three dimensions, and not only can you not see what you, you're doing because, because the tissue is so thick, light's not going to pass through it in any meaningful way. Um, and also, you know, the way slice physiology can work is you have this, we mentioned this brain juice earlier, this artificial cerebrospinal fluid, which is basically oxygenated sugar water. Tastes like sweet and sour mix. Wait, you've tasted artificial brain juice? <laughs> of course I've tasted it. Please. Can you make a whiskey sour with ACS? <laughs> it's kind of, it smells a little weird. Um, right. So because the way brain cells and the brain normally gets its oxygen are through blood vessels, once you have a slice of brain or once you have the brain no longer connected to the heart, you lose that oxygenation and cells get unhappy and die. So the idea with slice physiology is you cut a thin enough slice that just by washing oxygenated solution all over it, you'll keep the slices relatively, with the cells relatively happy. So the, the question is, if you, if you take a, an owl and you inactivate, you pharmacologically 
silence, this cholinergic nucleus, what you see is this huge deficit in the enhancement of, of sensory encoding that happens. You know, I, I mentioned that if you have a really salient stimulus, then you see that the neurons are more active than if something else in the world is, is more salient. So you can really block that enhancement if you inactivate very precisely the, this cholinergic nucleus. And so the question that my research is, is to some extent asking is, what is the release of acetylcholine doing to the circuitry within the tectum. So this links into a question that many other labs are asking, which is that acetylcholine has been linked to attentional enhancement of sensory information processing in multiple species in multiple brain areas. But the exact mechanisms underlying that enhancement, what the, the neurotransmitter, the neuromodulator acetylcholine is actually doing to cells and circuits remains relatively opaque. So the nice thing about the tectal preparation is that we have this uh, circuit that maintains a very physiological-like activity. So the additional component of this is getting back to oscillations, mm -hmm. is that when you have that really salient thing in the world, what you do is you trigger this this persistent rhythm called a gamma oscillation. Gamma means that it's you know somewhere between 25 and 60 hertz frequency ac activity. So gamma oscillations have also been associated with attention. Basically, if you're attending to an area of visual space, you're going to have enhanced gamma in the neurons that are encoding that area of space. Right. So what we have in the tectum and what differentiates the tectum and the tectal slice from any other brain slice and brain region is, in any other animal, is that we can have, we know what the circuitry is that generates the gamma oscillation. And without any pharmacological manipulation to the slice, we can provide electrical stimulation of visual inputs and trigger this gamma oscillation. And Previously, it had been shown that the power, the strength of that oscillation, of that network activity, is highly dependent on acetylcholine receptors. What was unclear is what, where were those receptors? What about the generation of the gamma were they influencing? Mm -hmm. so, so where's that, the acetylcholine coming from then? So it's coming from this associated nucleus that is in the, the slice. So that the right. tectum sort of looks like a wagon wheel, and mm -hmm. it surrounds an, an area of sort of nuclei, and one of those nuclei is this cholinergic one. So if you cut a slice that has these the, the axons connecting the tectum to the cholinergic nucleus and back again, in those slices you can provide this this sensory-like electrical stimulus by by electrically driving the axons of retinal ganglion cells, um, and you can trigger this gamma oscillation that looks identical to the oscillations recorded in vivo. Absolutely identical. So you can make sort of a fake bright spot happen. In yeah, the... exactly. That's, that's basically exactly what you're doing. And then because you're in vitro, um, you can then say, well, what are the cells that are, where in the slice is the acetylcholine having its effect? Is it influencing the generation of gamma of the gamma oscillations? And if it is, is there a specific part of the circuit that generates those oscillations that is being influenced? And so have you been able to figure that out, which cells are generating the gamma oscillations? Yeah, so this was, work was, was again done by Alex Goddard. So mm -hmm. he showed that much like in 
the gamma generation that seems to be occurring in the cortex or in the hippocampus, it involves two major components. So a gamma oscillation is persistent. It lasts for a long period of time. You, you activate the circuit sort of briefly, and then it lasts for 100 to 200 milliseconds afterwards. So that persistent activity is dependent on NMDA receptors, so a particular type of excitatory um, receptors that respond to glutamate. So persistence dependent on NMDA receptors, and then the rhythm is dependent on GABAergic inhibition. And the idea is that you have excitatory inhibitory neurons that are driven to fire for a long period of time, and then the interneurons, that the inhibitory neurons are coupled to each other, most likely. And the interaction between those two carves out the gamma rhythm from this persistent sort of step function. That's the basic model. What we can say is that there are excitatory neurons that export the oscillation to the cholinergic nucleus. And if you record for them, you can observe that they get rhythmic excitation and rhythmic inhibition. And it's Mm -hmm. rhythmic with gamma power. And that what the acetylcholine appears to be doing is, so if you, if you take this slice that where acetylcholine is being re-released back on to sort of the whole, the gamma oscillator, if you then block acetylcholine, if you're measuring from those excitatory neurons that are the sort of exporting the oscillation, what you see is that the amount of inhibition they receive, which is strongly rhythmic at gamma, is significantly reduced if you block acetylcholine. And what appears to be going on, and and sort of I'm in the last stages of really showing this beyond the shadow of a doubt, is that there are a subset of the inhibitory neurons that are critical for the generation of the rhythm. A subset of those contain a very specific type of acetylcholine receptor. So it's a receptor that binds acetylcholine, and when it does, it excites the inhibitory neuron, we're causing it to produce more inhibition. And that increase in inhibition makes the gamma rhythm stronger because of, you know, it's, it's basically injecting additional drive into the system. So what's cool about this is that from the perspective, if you think about acetylcholine throughout the brain as a neuromodulator, where the the sort of persistent struggles that neuroscience as a whole has had with dealing with acetylcholine is that on the one hand, you have this idea that, well, it seems to be important for spatial attention, for very precisely modulating the activity of a particular subsets of neurons. But on the other hand, the projections of the cholinergic neurons are very broad. They're not spatially precise at all. So how do we reconcile these two things? So whereas in the tectum, the spatial precision of the, the cholinergic neurons is, is pretty high, what's not precise about them is that they're releasing acetylcholine across all the layers of the tectum, which, as I mentioned before, contain many different processing units. So there's the unit that processes visual drive, there's a unit that processes multimodal drive, and then sandwiched in between them is the unit that generates the gamma oscillation. And what it looks like is that in order to get a specific effect on the gamma oscillator, an effect that you wouldn't necessarily want on the neurons processing visual stimulus, the way you you have that specificity of targeting, despite the fact that the axon of the single neuron is releasing acetylcholine across all of the processing units, the way you get that specificity is by very precisely targeting the receiver. 
and targeting that receiver onto a, onto the specific neuron that you want and having the identity of that receiver be very tuned to the, the type of modulation that you want to achieve. So in the realm of acetylcholine receptors, there are some that are able to be driven for long periods of time. So lots of acetylcholine means that they'll be driven for, you know, as long as there's acetylcholine around. There's others who stop being active very quickly after acetylcholine sort of gets into the prep. And because what you have in the gamma oscillator, you know, in order to, to modulate this gamma oscillation, which is prolonged, it's going on for a long period of time, it sort of makes intuitive sense that you'd want a receiver that's able to respond over a prolonged period of time and, and sort of not start to ignore the acetylcholine that's being released over and over again during the 100 to 200 millisecond release event. So you're saying it works kind of like our cell phones in that the broadcast signal is sent throughout the air everywhere, and it doesn't know where my phone is, but it's because my phone specifically has got the receiver to pick up that signal that yeah, I get. Yeah, it's, a... very, it's very like that. I perhaps have often gone into neuroscience with this thought of, well, you, you really want the neuron, you, you want very specific targeting on all aspects of this. You want the incoming neuron to be very precisely targeting to, uh, to you know, its partner on the other end. But what the cholinergic system seems to be doing, not only in the tectum, but also in the, the cortex and likely in the hippocampus, is it's sort of releasing its signal everywhere and counting on very precise receivers to pick up and do with that acetylcholine whatever the circuit those receivers are modulating need. So another part of your project has been to develop optogenetics in chickens. So first, can you just explain what optogenetics is for any listeners who aren't familiar with the technique? Sure. It's a technique that allows us to take proteins that respond to light, and we introduce those proteins into cells. And depending on the specific nature of that protein, when you shine a particular wavelength of light, a particular color of light, you can either make that cell more active or less active. And it's work that's sort of revolutionized the field of neuroscience because it allows you to very precisely with temporal and cellular precision say these neurons and these neurons alone I'm going to turn them on now and not later but just at this exact moment in time they will be on or they will be off. So what are some of the other ways that people had turn neurons on and off and how, so, how are they worse than, than right so that you know the main way and in fact the, the way that has been used to great effect in many labs including the Knudsen lab is using pharmacology so taking a drug that that turned that silences neurons and so the great thing about this is it works really well you silence neurons the bad thing about this is that there's no temporal precision you turn them off they're going to be off for you know five minutes to half an hour and there's going to be some some wiggle room in there, but what you aren't going to be able to do is say, okay, on in this 30-second window of time, these neurons will be off, and the next 30-second window of time, they will be on, which is what optogenetics allows you to do. And it also allows you the drug approach, the pharmacological approach says, I'm going to put this drug into this region of, of the brain. So all the neurons in this region will be turned off. What the optogenetics allows you to do is say, I only want these neurons that express this particular marker, that this particular protein, they will be the ones that I will turn off with my light or turn on with my light. And, and that's through genetics and viruses, and it's great. So when I was joined the lab, 
this was sort of just exploding onto the scene of neuroscience. And Eric and I sat down and we said, well, what would be absolutely wonderful is if we could take this cholinergic nucleus and we've stimulated it in vivo and we can puff bits of acetylcholine onto the slice. But what would be really great is if we could use light to trigger the activity of these cells, both sort of at with high temporal precision in an animal as well as in my slice preparation. And there's sort of some associated really cool questions involving, you know, the specific nucleus and exactly what neurotransmitters it's actually releasing um, that can only be answered with optogenetics. So as a sort of very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young graduate student, I said, oh, this will be easy. Everyone's, everyone's doing this. So it, it was at that point that I, for better or for worse, coined the frame the opto chicken, which I think has taught me a valuable lesson in, in project branding, because it's been my experience that, I mean, this is a very funny, evocative name, the opto chicken. That's Somehow what, better than opto mouse. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> let's, let's be honest, chickens are just inherently funny. And you're just putting the word opto in front of it, and you're just like, the possibilities are endless. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy? No. So it turned out that there were a couple of things that that I had not anticipated. I think the main one comes down to the fact that birds are not mammals. So, mm. yes. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. So, the basic idea is that in order to get optogenics to work, that the, the basic principle of optogenics is that you deliver these light-sensitive proteins using a virus. You infect cells in the brain. You know, optogenics was developed in rodents. There's tons of viruses, elegant viruses, for use in, in rodents. So when I started out this, I, you know, the, the expectation was, well, we'll just we'll just get those. We're at Stanford. Carl Dysart's lab is here. They, you know, are huge in optogenetics. And we'll just be able to sort of get a virus and put it in a work. So we did an experiment where we, where we sort of took a bird, a young chick, and we put a virus in. And we saw some really quite respectable cells glowing green, which was our marker that the virus had, had sort of been gotten into the cells and had infected them. And, and it was great. So we were, we were very encouraged. We we're like, okay, this is, this is happening. All we need to do is figure out how to like target the place we want to put the virus and we're ready to go. Then came maybe a year and a half of persistent failure where no virus worked. There was no green cells. So the first Lots. virus worked? The first the... Vi- it worked. It was great. There were, like, uh, there were probably like 100, 150 cells just like growing green in the tectum. It was great. Like I submitted grants with this beautiful picture. It was lovely. So encouraging. And then it just it didn't work. And then it kept not working. And then I switched viruses, and it still didn't work. And then I switched viruses about 13 more times, and it, and it still didn't work. At that point, I was sort of at my wit's end. And... The realization at some point, I, I basically told Eric, like, this isn't this isn't happening. Like, I don't know what to do here. Like, it's just it's not working. And I don't know why. Was this a dark time for you? It was a little. Yeah, it wasn't good. Um, I mean, at, at the same time as this. So I talked a lot about, you know, the project I'm working on. But that was not the project that I started out on. The project I started on, I eventually stopped working on because it, it wasn't tractable at all hmm. um, for various reasons. But, yeah, so, so there was. It was a interesting time. So, what were some of the thoughts that went through your head every day when you'd well, come in and you'd, you'd yeah, inject the it virus was, and it, it didn't was work? Really depressing. So, so the the way the sort of 
this works is that you come in, you inject the virus, um, you know, when when you have a, a mouse or a rat and you're injecting a virus, you have these things called stereotaxic coordinates, which are basically a map in three-dimensional space from a point on the mouse's skull to any brain region you want. So you can, it's really easy. It's driving directions. So there is no such thing in the young bird. So I was basically developing stereotaxic coordinates. So the first couple of times that there was no virus expression, I thought that I just like missed, completely missed. Like there was, I was thinking that, oh, maybe what I did is I so missed that I injected it into the skull on the other end and I went in like through the brain. There was, you know, and, and the way that this experiment goes is that you get your bird, you inject your virus, you wait a length of time that can run anywhere with these mammalian viruses from three weeks to three months. And then you look at their brain. You, you perfuse the animal, you cut sections. It's like a, a week process to sort of look at them. You mount all the sections of your slide. You go to the microscope in this dark room that's a little cold. And you look at them and you look for things that glow in green. And time after time, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And, and the, and the and fact that you have so many bottles of whiskey is, 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 is wholly definitely, unrelated. Yeah, wholly unrelated. <laughs> completely unrelated. So, you know, the, the thinking that goes on is, well, maybe I missed. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong brain region. So you, you cut slices there in the tectum because you think you got into the tectum. But maybe you shouldn't. So you, you section the entire chicken brain. It's a lot of sections. It takes forever. Um, and then there's nothing. So you're like, well, great. Maybe I didn't put enough in. Maybe I didn't wait long enough. So maybe, you know, four weeks, which generally works in a mouse, isn't long enough. Maybe I need to wait four months. Like, how long do I wait? Maybe it's the wrong virus. You know, different. It's, it's more and more well known that different brain regions, different viruses just won't infect different brain regions because they don't like it. So you're thinking, oh, maybe maybe this is the wrong type of virus. Maybe the the you know specifics about the virus are different, and and I should change it. And a subtle change will be the thing that works. Or or maybe you just should do it again because obviously you should do it again. Yeah, because it worked the first time. It worked the first time. Like maybe there was like maybe my electrode clogged and nothing came out, and that's why I can't see anything. So this with these these thoughts of my my own incompetence kept me happily, not so happily, injecting birds for quite a while. And I think that the biggest, at one point, I think this this experiment was the best thing for my mental health that I maybe ever did, which was I took the virus that, that wasn't working, that I couldn't, should have worked, and I injected it using the same equipment, like the same protocol, I injected it into a mouse. And I waited the same amount of time I'd been waiting for my bird. And then I sliced the mouse and said, okay, well, if I'm incompetent, this mouse will not have virus. And then I'll know that it's my hands, like something about my setup isn't working, and it will be like something that I can then, I can then start changing. And the mouse's entire brain was glowing green. It was <laughs> the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, except it was a mouse, and more beautiful, I guess, would have been a chicken. But there was this realization that, oh, wait – all of these viruses work just fine, and my my technique is perfect. The thing that's wrong is the chicken. There's something wrong about the chicken. So then I started reading the literature to figure out what exactly viruses did, how they got into cells. And what I realized was that viruses are accepted into the cells that they infect 
based on proteins that are on the virus being recognized by proteins on the surface of the cells. So all of these viruses that have been so elegantly designed and produced by labs such as, as the Dysoroth lab are viruses that are known to work in mammals. So the cells of mammals have proteins that these viruses recognize and are recognized by. So there's a long evolutionary gap between mammals and birds. It's huge. So it, it's, I realize that it, it might be reasonable to think that maybe the surface, the proteins on the surface of the bird cells were different enough from the proteins on the surface of the mammal cells that they just didn't recognize that the viruses wanted to come in and so weren't taking them up by and large, and that's why I wasn't seeing the infection. And so any time that there was little scattered bits of infection, that was sort of random happens. Like the neurons like took it in for whatever, maybe they were slightly damaged and they, they took it in just like by random chance. But the, the reason why I wasn't getting, you know, really robust expression was because the viruses just weren't making it in. So this, in, around about this time, Eric had sent out an email to I think every single birdsong lab in the country asking them whether they were working on optogenetics and whether it was working, which is sort of amazing that anyone responded because this was a couple years ago when showing you could do optogenetics in like put into a brain region show in effect was still like enough to get you a science and nature paper, mm. like right off the bat. So, you know, I was sitting there being like, no one no one's going to tell you, Eric, if they've got a virus that works because they think they're, you, you want to scoop them. Like, please. But Can you Eric, explain what a scoop, scoop oh, is? Oh, yeah. So scoop is, is, you know, you tell someone something about what you're working on, privileged information, and they go, they use the same technique, they do it faster than you and publish it and steal your thunder. But people like Eric. He's a nice guy. So we actually got lots of helpful responses from various birdsong groups, several of which who have, have since published their work using optogenetics in, in other species of birds. And what they told us was that they too had had a lot of difficulty getting these mammalian viruses to work in their birds. And what they'd seen was that there'd be one specific brain region where one virus worked. That virus would only infect cells in that brain region and no other brain region. And that another brain region would require a completely different virus and that you couldn't predict at all which ones were going to work. You just had to do trial and error. So as it, that, 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 that came somewhere in the trial and error part of like 13 different viruses. So then at some point, I was perusing through the SFN Society for Neuroscience meeting abstracts. And a lab at Kyoto University, led by Dai Watanabe, had published something with the enticing sounding name of avian adeno-associated virus. So an adeno-associated virus is a particular type of virus that is the one routinely used to deliver optogenetic particles. And this one was branded avian. So I was like, ooh, that sounds really encouraging. And they, in fact, showed in this poster. And then very soon after a plus one journal article, they developed an avian virus that infected chicken neurons extremely robustly, very rapidly, and they could get fluorescent proteins into these cells. And this was sort of amazing 
to me. Like it was it was blindingly fast. It worked like they published that it worked in chicken cells. Like this was great. So I went up to Eric when when sort of became clear that they'd published this. I said, Eric, I need you to activate your PI powers and email this guy. Like you need to you need to email him and say, can he send us this virus? And we need to we need to try it and see if it works. So what I I didn't know is that this particular Dai Watanabe had gotten, and what Eric didn't know, in all fairness, was that the head of the lab at Kyoto University had done his postdoc with the same person that Eric did his postdoc with. We didn't figure this out until after we had sent them this email saying, hey, we really loved your PLOS One paper. Would you be interested in having us test in vivo your fluorescent proteins, and are you at all thinking of developing optogenetics in them? Bless them. They sent us virus and said, here, please try it. We tried it. They tried it in, in cultured neurons. They said, we'd love to know what happens if you inject it into a living brain and then you know, see whether it's, it's feasible to use as, as sort of this delivery mechanism. And it, it works great. It's really exciting. So the, the current state of this project, so that was a year ago now, that we got the first step of this, which is use a virus to get a glowing marker into your neurons. And then the, the trick becomes use it to get these proteins that allow you to turn on and, or off the cells, in our case, on the cells. So that's been a, a bit more of a longer road. So we got proof of principle maybe last fall, which... I think I calculated with something like three years and 14 days after the first time I'd injected a bird. Like, yay, yay lab notebooks. Can we go back to your dark time for, for yeah, a minute? Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I think this is a really interesting example because it's, it sounds, you know, in a paper, you know, when you're, when you're reading a paper about the opto chicken in the future, it'll say, you know, in one line in the method section, well, uh, we used a bird avian virus, and everyone will say, "Oh, of course, that makes sense. You yeah, shouldn't right. use it. You shouldn't use a mammalian virus. Uh, you should use a, a, a virus that infects birds." And it sounds sort of almost obvious. But all those things that you were worried about, whether it was coming out of the the out of the tip of, of your injecting thing, or whether you missed the spot, or uh, any of the crazy thoughts that you had, were all actually completely reasonable explanations yeah. as well. And none of them will be will be recorded in in the paper, which will be very blasé about that and about the fact that, that I had to develop stereotaxic coordinates with optogenetics. Um, I don't have that yet, but, you know, once we have a working virus, I'll use the stereotaxic coordinates that I developed to deliver the virus and then test this. And so I was, I was at UC Berkeley and I said that line, like, I will use the stereotaxic coordinates I developed. And I hear this gasp from a postdoc <laughs> in the room. And later he comes up to me, he's like, I can't, you just said that like, oh, I, de- I developed it. It was it just it took an afternoon. He's like, you people didn't understand like what it takes to go in blind into a brain, not know where you're going, and systematically alter where your electrode or where your whatever you're sticking into the brain to mark where you've been to mm-hmm. systematically alter that in a way that allows you to figure out the precise like five millimeter zone. That you want to target. I mean, there is a reason they call it brain surgery, I guess. Yeah. I, I like telling my parents that I do brain surgery. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I mean, the thing that I've, I've taken most away from this and, and the thing that I, I really like impressing or really want to impress on, on sort of younger students is 
that you do these projects and you, you'll start a project and you'll think, oh, like logically it makes sense that this is going to work. It'll be fine. We'll put optogenetics into the bird. Like it works in so many other species. It was working in monkey. It was working in rodents. It sounds easy. You read the papers and it sounds great. But papers that you're reading don't, there, there's a lot of variability in science and there's a lot of things that you won't know is going to be a problem until it, it smacks you in the face for months on end. And the, the important thing to know is to, is to realize when it's not working through no fault of your own. Looking back on the project, I spent way longer than I should have trying different viruses and repeating the same viruses. You know, it was, it was years. And I should have stopped after six months when it was becoming clear that, that nothing was working. I should have done the mouse test way earlier, right away. So having chutzpah to be able to, to look at your project objectively and say, well, this isn't, this isn't working and it's not worth my time as a scientist to keep to work on it because the technical problems are not things that can be solved. It's biology. It's conspiring against me. And there's just some questions that are not tractable in your system. Well, I think maybe it's time that we play our favorite game, I think so. Not My Field. And so in this game, we're going to give you three titles of papers, and your job is to tell us which of these papers is an actual paper. Are I'll you ready to play Not My Field? Okay, so your first question. Is the real paper, one, beer preferences in seven species of tube-nosed fruit bat, two, pressures produced when penguins poo, calculations on avian defecation, or three, an evolutionary study of nasal cavity shape on sneeze velocity, insights from dynamic modeling. Oh, man. I hope it's the last one. <laughs> that, that sounds awesome. Hmm. Let's see. Okay. So this, the sneeze velocity, which is dynamically modeled, there's the penguin pooping one, which sounds a little too close to birds' penguin cocktail shakers. Mm. The defecation, <laughs> I'm just chalking up to Forrest being interested in it. <laughs> Clearly a well, conspiracy. Exactly. Hmm. You know, I'm going to go with three because that, that gives me the greatest computational pleasure. It may be wrong, but... Unfortunately, unfortunately oh. you're wrong. I'm going to read from the abstract. Sure. Um, Chistrano and Adelaide penguins generate considerable nice. pressures to <laughs> propel their feces away from the edge of the nest. The pressures involved can be approximated if the following parameters are known. One, the distance the fecal matter travels before it hits the ground, two, the density and viscosity of the material, and three, the shape, aperture, and height above the ground of the orifice. Can you keep reading from the abstract? With all these parameters measured, we calculated that fully grown penguins generate pressures of around 10 kilopascal to expel watery material and 60 kilopascal to expel material of high viscosity similar to that of olive oil. The forces involved, laying well above those known for humans, are high, but do not lead to an energetically wasteful, turbulent flow. Whether a bird chooses the direction into which it decides to expel its feces and what role the wind plays in this remains unknown. I wonder why penguins, so, so whether penguins are the only bird species that propel their feces away from their nest, because ducks also have very watery feces. There's a distinct relationship between how aquatic an animal is and how runny its feces are. Makes sense. We've yeah. clearly thought a lot about chicken 
poop in the Newton lab. <laughs> no. Well, moving on from that shitty question. Um, oh. <laughs> so, question two. So, which of these three papers is the real paper? One, interspecies crosstalk of hormone cycles in a farm environment between cows, chickens, and pigs. Two, ovulatory cycle effects on tip earnings by lap dancers, economic evidence for human estrus. Or three, the effects of pre-slaughter hormone levels on the taste of Kobe beef. I'm relatively confident it's two because I think I've, I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to, to read from the abstract, uh, to see whether estrus was really lost during human evolution, as researchers often claim it is, we examined ovulatory cycle effects on tip earnings by professional lap dancers working in gentlemen's clubs. 18 dancers recorded their menstrual periods, work shifts, and tip earnings for 60 days on a study website. A mixed model analysis of 296 work shifts, representing about 5,300 lap dances, wow, showed an interaction between cycle phase and hormonal con contraception use. Normally, cycling participants earned about U.S. $335 per five-hour shift during estrus and $260 per shift during the luteal phase and $185 per shift during menstruation. By contrast, participants using contraceptive pills showed no estrus earnings peak. These results constitute the first direct economic evidence for the existence and importance of estrus in contemporary human females in a real-world working setting. These results have clear implications for human evolution, sexuality, and economics. So the question is, in the females using the contraceptive control, where were their tip earnings? Was it at the peak or like which cycle was it equivalent to and do they have so i'm saying can we extrapolate some advice for for females in this job so it says that there was no estrus peak earnings so i'm right, so assuming the question they is, have their their average is just going to be the lower. 260 yeah okay. well, they, they just don't eat that they don't they don't get that extra little oh. bonus there. Oh, well. That's what I would presume. I didn't read the whole paper. Yeah. It's it's not controlling for, for sexiness of dancing, though. It is not. It's that not, is true. Right? Well, I think I you would need a, a contemporary mean, I would, I would online... Assume, I would assume that the, the implication is that during estrus, the dancing is sexier, and that's why they Yeah, but the question tips. is, is it chemically driven or, or sort of, you know, to be blunt, in, you know, during your, during your period, you don't dance as sexy? Okay, so third one. Your first option is impact of wet underwear on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort in the cold. Number two, does size matter? Effective shoe size of, on the perceived attractiveness of male college students. Or three, adaptive thermosensitivity of sensory afferents in natives of warm and cold climates. Well, the third one sounds like it's the most sense. Like that's an actual study someone would do. Or should do. I mean, I think it's going to be wrong, though, because it, it's too sensible. Mm. But I'll, I'll go with it anyway, because I, I feel there should be a stand made for real science. But it's, it's going to be wrong, I can tell. Yeah, you no. fell for the honeypot. Oh, it's actually the first one. So the purpose of this study was to investigate the significance of wet underwear and to compare any influence of fiber-type material and textile construction of underwear on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort of humans during rest in the cold. The test demonstrated the significant cooling effect of wet underwear on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort. Shocking. <laughs> is, this, is this males or females or both? The test was done on eight men. Oh. Mm. <laughs> um, That's a very low sample size. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Uh, further, the test showed that textile construction of underwear and the two-layer clothing ensemble had an effect on the evaporation rate of the clothing during rest, rest in the cold, resulting in a significant difference in mean skin temperature. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah, this is deep and <laughs> unexpected. Don't wear wet underwear and no, wear layers. No, you don't wear wet underwear. Oh, that's we right. Don't we don't we know. Yeah. We're still I can do anything. You can't, you can't overgeneralize. So yeah. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Mariko Bennett, a fourth-year MD-PhD student in Ben Barris's lab here at Stanford. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU. This episode was produced by Forrest Coleman, Julia Turan, and myself. For more information about Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org. That's www.neuwritewest.org.